This is Soccer City. The city was Los Angeles on Sunday night. That's where the New York City Football Club earned a 2-2 draw against the expansion Los Angeles Football Club. I'll have a post-game chat with Swedish fullback Anton Tinnerholm, who for the second time this season appealed successfully for video review. You shall trust the Swedes. That, that's, <laughs> you can trust them. I'll have a chat also with New York City resident Sebastian Abbott. He penned a book, The Away Game, the epic search for soccer's next superstars. I mean, that you could have a Spanish scout working for a Qatari sheikh scouring the African continent to funnel kids to a tiny Belgian town uh, in Europe, and it really is the global game. Our first story had its origins at a little French restaurant on 57th Street. Ten years later, the Kicking and Screening Film Festival has become a significant part of the soccer cinema landscape. This year's KNS Fest, Tuesday, May 22nd through Friday the 25th, will be at the Scandinavian House in Midtown Manhattan. Soccer on the Block takes us to Major League Soccer headquarters on Fifth Avenue, where Greg Lawless is a senior editor and vice president of content at MLS. It's where I caught up with Lawless, who is also the co-founder of Kicking and Screening. Tell me about that first year at the little French restaurant. You, what did you do to put up a, you know, kind of pull up a screen and then uh, and then play the movies? Um, honestly, yes, that's exactly what we did. Uh, so it was the the that was actually an amazing year. So the festival actually um, was founded on a blind date with my co-director of the festival now, Rachel Marcus, who um, probably luckily for us it didn't work romantically. But it did work from a business standpoint, um, and she's happily married, and I'm happily married now. With other, we have our own kids on the side. Um, but we went on this date, and we both started talking about soccer and film. And next thing you know, she was like, "You know, I've always wanted to do a soccer film festival." And I said, "Well, let's do it." And three months later, you know, I called up some people that I knew who had spaces, and she called up someone who had spaces. And that first year, we opened up at a restaurant called Opia, which doesn't exist anymore, and they had this little back room. And we showed a French uh, film um, called uh, Les Yeux dans les Bleus, which uh, is about the French national team at the 1998 World Cup. So it had never really been seen in the United States. We had people showing up like two hours before it was to kick off that they were so excited to see this film. And it was funny. There were a lot of French men who showed up to show their American girlfriend this film, which is, this is the best film ever, and France won the World Cup. It was really funny. And then it was like this beautiful restaurant, so you had this amazing food being served and, you know, nice French wine. It was, it was all a little bit more hoity-toity than probably a, a soccer film festival normally would be, but it was a great way to kick off the whole thing. The selection of the movies, I mean, what, is it at this point do people send you the flicks and then you review them, or do you go out and search? Um, it's a combination of both. So, um, you know, on our website, we have a call for submissions. On social, we have a call for submissions. Um, but then Rachel, uh, my partner in all of this, is um, she's kind of like, uh, you know, one of those um, dogs like that go and search for things underground or, you know, like can, can ferret out groundhogs or whatever it is, right? She finds films in the most random places. She has an amazing eye for what's a good soccer film, and she is so adamant about showing quality over maybe a film that she's like yeah we could sell this out because it's got a lot of good buzz or something like that but it's got buzz just because of uh, something that she doesn't think is really great quality so she's so much more focused on the quality of the filmmaking because she's a film person at heart um and so you know even this year in our 10th year 
she's like over the moon about the quality of the films that we have, either from a storytelling standpoint, a production standpoint, um, and the mix of the films that we have. So um, that's how it works. So in terms of the films, are you looking for something, or is she looking for something more esoteric, or is it just a feel? I mean, are we going to, do we see Victory or Bend It Like Beckham, those sort of films, or are we looking for something a, a little deeper? Well, um, first of all, I, we will we will differentiate victory from bend it like beckham those are we're not going to put those in the same category for one for one uh victory was uh directed and made by an academy award winning uh, uh director named john houston so he was a, a legend in the in the world of film so and victory of course um is a legend film in soccer I suppose Bennett Like Beckham is also a legendary film in the world of soccer as well, but in very different ways. Um, we have shown victory in the past, partly because it is, I mean, it's, it's kind of the Gone with the Wind or Citizen Kane of soccer films. So it will never be one that we would turn our back on. We're looking for really interesting stories. We're looking for um, stories we think are going to resonate with the community. Um, with the soccer community in New York and, and the art community as well, the film community, if you will. Um, a little, we're looking that way a lot more than we are looking at sort of like what's going to sell tickets. All right, well, let's, can we get a brief synopsis of, of yeah, each film go. that's going to show? So we have football, for better or worse, English subtitles. We're going to Sweden for this one. We are. So this is a film um, directed by Inger Molin, uh, and it's – it's the story of the Swedish women's club FC Rosengard, which is one of the bigger clubs in Europe. They've done well in Champions League. They've, and this is the story of their year. Think of it like a hard knocks, if you will, right? Where they follow them through the year. And this is the year that Marta was playing for them, the Brazilian superstar, you know, or three-time FIFA World Player of the Year or something like that. Um, and they have a new sporting director uh, who is one of the legendary Swedish uh, uh, players, and it's about really just a, it's a snapshot in time of this club and women's soccer in Europe. All right, the title of this next one, Messi and Me. Yeah. So what, what do we have? Is it Lionel? So this is an interesting one. So, and in fact, there's a little um, anecdote about this. When this was first announced, I got an email from the head of the FC Barcelona fan group here in New York City. It said, hey, we saw this movie Messi and Me. Is it going to be shown? What can we do to help? And I had to rewrite him back and say, well, just so you know, we want any help you can give us, but there's not really any messy in this film. Um, this is the story of a guy named Matt Eliason, who was a, um, one of the best players at Northwestern University history. And uh, randomly, about five years ago, there was this um, friendly in Chicago, an exhibition, if you will, called Messi and Friends. And, you know, Terry Henry was in this and a couple of other players. And they needed some extra players to fill out the teams. And somebody got a hold of somebody that got a hold of Matt. And he showed up, and he's a forward. And at some point in the second half, Thierry Henry clips a ball into him in the box, and he scores on an amazing bicycle kick. And so that went viral everywhere. It was like number one on SportsCenter Top 10, all of this stuff. And uh, so this is the story about what happened to Matt after that moment. Well, there was a tragic moment, 2016, Chapecoense, and there's uh, a movie entitled Nosa Chape. So what's that about? So it's exactly about that. This is about the, the tragic airplane crash in 2016 that uh, took all but three players from Chapecoense, the Brazilian club. 
Um, and uh, this is made by the Zimbalist brothers, who are also the guys behind uh, the two Escobars. So these are very, very top-notch filmmakers. Um, and this is this is one of those nights. Actually, this is night three of the festival. This this film uh, will show on Thursday, May twenty fourth, and it's um, it's one of those things. Uh, on most of the film nights that we do. We have ancillary programming around it, whether it's a panel discussion or a party or something like that. This film is so powerful and poignant and, and frankly, heartbreaking in many ways as well um, that, you know, we said we're not going to do any more. This film is so powerful in its own right. It does The night doesn't need anything else. Um, so, uh, But uh, it tells that story of Chapa Quince and what happens after that to try to rebuild. And the uh, final night, uh, American football. It's basically four friends, um, and uh, they go off in search of soccer, if you will, or they, they go traveling through Latin America with soccer as their passport, really. Um, and they're looking to learn about how the game is lived and experienced throughout Latin America. Um, they're also learning to see how they change. Um, they're learning to understand how Americans are viewed in the soccer space as they're moving through Latin America. And uh, it's a world premiere, so we're really excited about this uh, to, as a closing night. And then, of course, after that, there is a massive party, um, so we'll, uh, we'll celebrate the entire week. Well, it sounds awesome. Uh, I, I know some of these movies have eventually moved out. I know uh, Club Frontera debuted in L.A. At, at one point. But the bigger question is, these films, are they available or will they be at, at some point? It's a good question. You know, um, when Rachel and I started this festival in 2009, one of the, 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 the impetuses behind it was that there were all of these really good soccer films that weren't seeing the light of day. And so people often ask us, why do you do this, right? Because let's be honest. I lose money. I spend a lot of time and energy. I call in favors from a lot of friends around it, right? So you kind of wonder, what am I? What are you doing in here, right? But it's a labor of love, and and a big part of it is not just to be able to bring the soccer community in New York together, but another big part of this is to give a place for these filmmakers to show their films. Um, recently, uh, actually, this past January, we launched a a new. Um, entity called Kicking and Screaming Media Group with the sole purpose of trying to find more places for these films to be seen. So it's basically a distribution company. These films that we're going to show this year uh, for Kicking and Screening in 2018, those are films that we're going to talk to them about distribution as well and say, how, how, how can we help you get these films seen in other places? Because they're great films and they need distribution and people need to see them. And we know just from over the last 10 years, people emailing us and calling us and saying, hey, I can't get to New York. I live in Boise or I live in Los Angeles or I live in Mexico City or whatever it is. I would love to see this film. How can I do that? And most often we have to say, sorry, we really don't know, right? Um, now we're putting in place a process where maybe we can say, well, hey, look, it's on iTunes and you can watch it here. It's on you know, uh, the Play Store, Google Store, or Amazon, or whatever it is, and you can stream it. So um, that's, a, that's sort of that next iteration of what we're doing. Celebrating the 10th anniversary of Kicking and Screening, that's co-founder Greg Lalas. Go to kickingandscreening.com. Aspire Football Dreams, a humanitarian project aimed at empowering thousands of 13-year-old boys in developing countries, to give them a chance for a college scholarship or maybe even a pro soccer career. It's the inspiration for The Away Game, the epic search for soccer's next superstars, a book by Sebastian Abbott. 
He calls it the largest talent search in soccer history, maybe the history of all sports. The last 10 years, Cutter, through the Aspire Academy, have conducted tryouts for over 5 million young boys, mostly from Africa. Uh, every year, the scouts will choose a handful of kids to train to become pros at a billion-dollar sports academy in Doha. The program is led by a Spanish scout, uh, Joseph Colomer who helped Lionel Messi's career while working as the youth director in Barcelona. He first started in Senegal at the dirt fields where kids were showcased, and he realized that the amount of undiscovered talent in Africa was immense. So he conjured up a more blanket talent search, hence the Aspire Football Dreams. Abbott points to statistics which indicate the benefits of a street soccer environment as he presents it in his book. An example was the Argentinian Messi. We pick up the conversation there. Sebastian, you uh, you refer to Lionel Messi. Quote from the book, he's probably a decent athlete, but he's not a super athlete. Maybe what stands him out as above others is that he spent all those hours training, a lot of it initially in street football, developing the key technical competencies that are important to progress. So there, uh, I don't think uh, there might be a little argument with the Cristiano Ronaldo uh, supporters, but here we have the greatest uh, footballer, the greatest soccer player in the world, maybe in the history of the game. And once again, we point to street soccer. Yeah, exactly. You know, Messi spent a lot of time playing, you know, games on the dirt fields in Rosario, Argentina, where he grew up. The other thing that's quite interesting about Messi is that, you know, he's a good example of, you know, what can happen when, you know, a player is very small at a young age. You know, Messi had this growth disorder where he actually had to take a growth hormone to, to try and grow into a normal human-sized being. There's a reason why he left Rosario for Barcelona all those years ago. And, you know, what they've discovered is that scouts actually have a bias towards picking sort of bigger, stronger, faster players when they're young. But these players don't actually end up being the ones who oftentimes are the ones who are most successful when they get older. It's often the ones like Messi who are smaller when they're growing up and, you know, have to develop the vision, the technique to compensate for their small size. And then once they kind of catch up from a growth perspective as they get older, they tend to be oftentimes the ones that come out on top, which is sort of counterintuitive to what scouts often think when they're first picking players. Yeah, and you you talk about clubs that it's very complex and they have to focus on younger and younger kids, Mm -hmm. academies targeting children as young as five years old. Obviously, in a case like Messi's, he may uh, fall through the cracks. I mean, it's often said that if Messi grew up in the States, he never would have made it because of our uh, tendency to identify the uh, more athletic and the more physically pronounced kids. Yeah, exactly. And maybe even England as well in terms of, uh, you know, their propensity to pick bigger and stronger players as well. I mean, it's interesting because this, you know, as you said, the academies are going younger and younger in terms of scouting and picking kids. I mean, the idea of scouts sort of scouring the fields for five-year-old soccer players is pretty amazing to think about. But there's this tension because, you know, the younger you go, the more time you have to train them and the less of a chance that some competing team is going to scoop them up. But it's harder and harder the younger you go to determine whether a kid actually has the potential to succeed. So actually your failure rate is probably going to be higher the younger you're picking your kids. And so there's always a bit of a tension there about what age do you actually want to try and scout kids and bring them into an academy. When you talk about Joseph Kolomer, the former youth director for the Barcelona Academy, who again was uh, in Africa uh, trying to identify perhaps the next superstar, there was a, a point to be made there that he, he he used intuition more than 
analytics, but you scouting, and, and this is part of what you uh, publish as well, is, is becoming more science than perhaps the art? Is that problematic yeah. in your mind? Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, there's been, you know, developments over the years. I mean, some people always sort of point to soccer as kind of a laggard when it comes to um, the use of data analytics in the sport. You know, there's there's the conservative holdouts who always kind of say, well, you can't use numbers to measure the size of a player's heart, that kind of thing. Um, but, you know, increasingly we're seeing, uh, you know, more and more use of data analytics in soccer, especially at the top levels of the sport, you know, with more advanced statistics like expected goals and expected assists. But the sort of real kind of next level data analytics is just starting to occur where rather than measuring things that happen on the ball, like passes or shots or dribbles, they're trying to measure what's happening off the ball because, you know, basically 99% of what happens in a game and soccer happens off the ball. And unless you're capturing that in the data, you're really missing out on what's happening. But with increased player tracking data and ball tracking data through the cameras that are recording everything that happens on the field and the advanced algorithms that some uh, data analysts are developing, they're starting to be able to measure things like vision and game intelligence, which are more important in sort of determining the real potential of a player. And so that's really just happening at the forefront of the sport at the highest levels. But once that um, filters down to the youth level, I think it will be quite interesting. One thing I often say to people is that I think you could get to the point where, like, you have a, a scout standing on the sidelines of a swampy field in Nigeria putting a drone up over the game that's collecting player tracking data that then spits a bunch of player intelligence figures to his iPhone that he can immediately have there to assess the the kids in front of him. And so I think the sport, you could see a lot of changes in the years to come. Uh, assuming he can get reception on his iPhone okay. in that particular <laughs> area. Aspire football dreams uh, geared mostly towards African players. I know that uh, there are 12 countries involved. And uh, I, I spoke recently to a friend in Costa Rica who's involved in development. And I know that football dreams has been there as well. And if you look mm -hmm. at MLS here in the States, uh, and some of the uh, Ghanaian players that are part of MLS who perhaps mm -hmm. were discovered through something similar, Mohamed Abu from Columbus, mm -hmm. David Akam now with Philadelphia, Harrison mm -hmm. Awful and, and Jonathan Mensah also with Columbus, Dominic mm -hmm. Adoro, Montreal, and then uh, recently Ebenezer Afori uh, mm -hmm. here with the New York City Football Club uh, was added. So uh, you see that uh, it can work. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think... You know, Africa has, has obviously produced some of the biggest stars in the world in recent years. You know, you mentioned some of them here that play in the MLS. You have players like Didier Drogba from the Ivory Coast and Samuel Eto'o from Cameroon. Um, you know, but, but Joseph Colomer, this Spanish scout, you know, he thought that that was just sort of the tip of a massive iceberg of talent in Africa. And that although there were African players already grabbing the headlines, that that was just the beginning. And that, you know, there were a huge number of players that were overlooked and, you know, if developed in the right way, could become future stars. And, you know, as you said, in the MLS, we've seen more and more African players over the years. And, you know, I think, you know, we, we may see that in, in leagues around the world going forward because the sort of raw talent, as I said, is, is everywhere you look on the continent. I think the other amazing part of the story, you talk about those those guys that are out there that are undiscovered, is that the Aspire group uh, actually purchased a lower division club in Belgium, Eupen, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. which is now first division, coached by Claude uh, Macaulay, who's played at Chelsea and Real Madrid, born in Zaire, which is now the uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo. But here is an actual club in place for these players to move through. 
Yeah, it was a really an amazing part of the story. I mean, basically what happened was, was Joseph Colomero and the others who were conducting this search, they knew that it's often quite difficult for a player when he finishes the academy at the age of 18 to make the jump to a top club. Oftentimes they need more years of experience, potentially at a lower level. And so, you know, when you have as much money as you need on your hands, you know, they went around, looked for a club they could buy and ended up, as you said, buying this one in this small Belgian town of Oipen. And it was a pretty incredible experience because all of a sudden the, the local residents of this, you know, town of only 20,000 people, you know, woke up one morning and their local team, the Pandas, was owned by some Middle Eastern country they'd never heard of and filled with African teenagers. And so it didn't necessarily go down that well uh, with all of the local residents in the town. One of the supporters groups uh, actually boycotted the first year. But once they realized that these African kids were actually a lot better than the previous players, they started to win the town over. And for me, it was just an example of, it just shows how global the game has become. I mean, that you could have a Spanish scout working for a Qatari Sheikh scouring the African continent to funnel kids to a tiny Belgian town uh, in Europe, and it really is the global game. Sebastian Abbott, his book, The Away Game, The Epic Search for Soccer's Next Superstars. I tweeted earlier this week that Ishmael Tajuri Shradi said he was 100% fit and ready to go for Sunday at Los Angeles Football Club, a game you heard live here on WNYE. The rookie forward was tied for the team lead with four goals, despite missing three and a half games with a hamstring issue. And the response to that tweet was clear. It was a very happy fan base. Shradi's head coach is Patrick Vieira, and he told me prior to the LAFC match that he was torn about how to utilize Shradi. You know, I was thinking twice about starting him or not. Um, but he will get some part of the game because he's been training well and um, he's fully fit and um, and he's an important player for us. So he will take some part of the games today for sure. Well, with his team trailing 2-1 against the expansion side from Los Angeles, Vieira elected to insert Shradi in the 69th minute. Six minutes later, the Libyan national sent his team home with a point on the road. Dina's second ball picked up by David Villa. Villa now drives towards the top of the box, pushes it wide right for Tinner home, and his deflected service saved by Miller with the palm of his right hand, and the follow is a goal! And you know who it is? Ismail Tajuri Shradi. How about that? That is an astonishing finish. What a fantastic strike. His first effort on goal. And yet again, Tajuri Shradi scores a beauty. That was the live call with my partner, Ian Joy. Amazingly, it was only Shradi's eighth shot of the season, fifth on target. And with five goals, he shares the team lead with David Villa. No one in the New York City FC camp had been able to rationally explain that 4 to nothing loss to the Red Bulls last week. N not necessarily the scoreline, but the lack of spirit and intensity throughout the rivalry contest at Red Bull Arena. Vieira indicated that's one of the reasons that he didn't start Shradi. time I wanted to challenge some players that uh, didn't do especially well against, against the Red Bulls. And... Um, and now, of course, what will make it really difficult is for me to, to, to choose the starting eleven. It is a good problem to have as a coach to try to find uh, to try to find a way to play all the all the all those players together. So Vieira was seeking a positive response after the disappointment at Red Bull Arena in Harrison, New Jersey, and he got it 
against this wildly entertaining expansion side from Los Angeles. You know, we needed to show that we have a good team. And like I told them in the, in the dressing room, I think, uh, you know, playing some really good football, that is something that has been consistent for us since the, uh, the first game of, uh, of the season. But I think where we, we were not consistent is about the mental approach of the game. And, uh, and today I was, uh, I was really pleased and really happy with the way that we, we work together. And, um, and that is the this is a really difficult place to come and, and to play. This is the, the focus and concentration that, that I will want uh, from my players from the first minute. Well, one of the players who responded favorably was right back Anton Tinnerholm. He was pulled after 45 minutes in the Red Bulls game. But for the second time this season, he was targeted by Maxi Morales on a corner kick that led to a David Villa penalty kick. And it was New York City's first goal in Los Angeles. At San Jose earlier this year, Tinnerholm scored a galazzo on a full volley off a corner. So this was no accident. My post-game conversation with the Swedish international. No, of course. We, we train on it on the, on the pitch and how we uh, want us to, to uh, like have the corner kicks to, to have a, yeah, me in a good uh, spot where, where I can either I can score as I did in San Jose or today uh, put it on the on the second post and uh, I think it was a clear handball so, so we got a penalty so uh, it's good work from from the blockers inside in the box and that that is one of one of the main thing that uh, that that can make me be that free and uh, get time on the ball and uh, yeah when I've got the time on the ball it's gonna be dangerous now, I'm going to imagine that you're a big fan of video assistant referee <laughs> review since your last two shots on goal have resulted in penalty kicks. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Uh, a couple of uh, friends back in Sweden is uh, wondering actually if what I'm saying about uh, VAR, but, and I'm telling them that uh, it's amazing. It's, uh, it's the best. And uh, as you're saying, uh, I got two penalty kicks now. and. Uh, David uh, thanking me as well, so, so uh, now it's great, but uh, as you see, it's the right, right decision and handball, and uh, if you have the technology, it's perfect to use it. On both of those, Anton, you were, you were so adamant so early, I mean, it was so clear to you, even that first one against uh, Dallas, right? You, you went right to the official, and it's almost, I, I just got the feeling that you did it in a way where they kind of trusted you, and it was like, yeah, maybe we should check this. Yeah, you shall. Uh, you shall trust the Swedes. That, that's <laughs> you can trust them. No, no. But I saw it on my angle. It was a clear handball. So, so you have to, uh, yeah, make the referee feel that uh, she he, uh, has to look look at it. And um, yeah, now they did it, and it was a clear handball, and was put us in a good position. So, so as I said before, if you have the technology, you use it. So how about? The game in general coming off what was pretty much a disaster last week did you like the response of your team yeah today we showed a fighting spirit that we uh, didn't have last game so so everybody was fighting for each other it was a really really tough game uh, i think i never run that much as i did uh, this game so so everybody was was fighting and uh, we won the duels and uh, if we had a little bit of luck in, in, the, in the end, we could even score the free, uh, free two goal. I, I think uh, we were the, uh, the team who was closest to, to the victory. 
we we fight for each other and uh, I'm proud of the team uh, today we showed uh, character today is there any way to explain the two different weeks and I know you had a more intense training week perhaps you, you talked about that on Wednesday but uh, is there any way to explain it is it just the physical condition the psychological condition of an athlete I don't know it's it's, it's a derby uh, against Red Bulls so it's hard to explain why we're not there uh, but now it's that that is history now and um, in this week we talked a lot we talked a lot how we want to start the game in a, in a better way we can't be 2 nil down after four minutes as, as we were at uh, Red Bull so, so we started the, the game today very well and but yeah they, they turn it around to 2-1 but uh, then we show the fighting spirit and then keep fighting for, for each other so so uh, some, some. Uh, this is one of the toughest game in in, uh, in the league. I think uh, LAFC away. So, so uh, I'm very proud of the the team, and uh, we take a point and uh, fly back to the best city in the world. That's New York City, and that'll do it for this week's Soccer City. Heard each Tuesday at one o'clock on WNYE. Also available on iTunes and the TuneIn app. Our next live broadcast is Saturday when the Boys in Blue host Colorado at Yankee Stadium, airtime 1245. I'm Glenn Crooks. Follow me on Twitter, at Glenn Crooks. If you have any feedback or ideas for the program, let me know. Enjoy your week of soccer.